Good morning. Good to see you folks today. And uh, hopefully you have notes in front of you that say the importance of keeping a clear conscience. And, uh, before we look to that, I want to encourage you to turn to the 24th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Acts chapter 24. And I'm going to read verses uh, 10 through uh, 16. And our thinking this morning from a biblical perspective is going to be centered around verse 16. But this is the Apostle Paul before Felix. So Acts chapter 24, then beginning in verse 10. Acts 24, beginning in verse 10. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. And let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the, the great privilege we have to come together on the Lord's Day, the day we're reminded of the reality and the glory and the power of the resurrection. I I thank you for each one that you have been pleased to bring here this morning and their, their obvious interest in, in things of eternal import and their own souls. And I, I pray that you would help me by your Holy Spirit in, in conveying um, your, your word in, in a way that is pleasing to thee and honoring to thee and also in a way that is, is instructive to our minds and, and to our souls with respect to the living of the Christian life. And we, we thank you for leaving us with so much rich truth and pray that you would help us to sort of plumb the depths of it in this particular area today and might it be edifying to our souls and honoring to thyself. And so we commit our time to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we will eventually get back to the confession. Um, uh, last time uh, I emphasized uh, Josiah. We considered him. He's one of the kings in the, the southern kingdom. And we focused especially on um, the quality of his life. He had a, had a tender heart. And that's something that we want to replicate in our lives as well. It's not just he had a tender heart. We want to be like that as well. And, and one of the, the Puritan, Richard Sibbs, indicated that... Um, uh, one of the helps for maintaining a tender heart was to take heed of the least sin against conscience. So they're very closely related themes. And so I want to again draw your attention to this is a, a spiritual quality that is needed for the living of the Christian life as a tender heart is and, and others as well. This is a quality that is needed uh, for the living of the Christian life. And I've got some material, as you can tell from the notes, to share with you. But one of the main takeaways, that, or maybe the main takeaway I want you to leave with, is that the, the whole idea of keeping a clear conscience before God, it's not secondary 
It's not subsidiary, but it is central. It's at the heart of the living of the Christian life. It's not something that can be relegated to a, a secondary position. So that's kind of the, the main thing that I would have you to leave with, uh, you're thinking with. But to begin with, I want you to notice uh, some reasons why this is such a vital and helpful subject, and at least the high points of this are, are on your notes. Number one, these are reasons why it's such an important subject to consider, I believe. Number one, in the nature of the case, it bears directly upon other central features of Christian living. That is, the conscience in the nature of the case bears upon other central aspects of, Christ, of Christian living. I have some that are not in your notes here. But turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. And the issue here is if one were to consider that we are to walk with the Lord, which is a spiritual reality that has to do with our conduct, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 17, they both make reference to this issue of, of walking with God. Verse 1, this is kind of a pivot verse in the book of Ephesians of chapter 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then if you drop down to verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So my, my point here is simply that it's not possible to consider uh, this theme of walking with God at any comprehensive level without emphasizing in connection with that the importance of keeping a clear conscience. Um, if we were to consider the subject of the Holy Spirit and the influence on the Christian life, which again is so central to the living of the Christian life, things like the, the fruit of the Spirit, or we, we need the Spirit's help in prayer, we don't want to quench the Holy Spirit, we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, um, we want to be led by the Spirit, and, and all of this presumes the necessity of a good conscience before God if we were to have the ongoing influence of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, when it comes to the subject of... Um, but we, something that we may have to do occasionally, confessing sin, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we might be con confessing particular sins, um, and this can't be entertained apart from the idea of conscience because it's a moral issue, right? Confessing sin, it's a moral issue. It has to do with what is right and what is wrong. And so when we confess sin, we're dealing especially with, I, I've, I've broken this particular law, this particular dictate of your word, so we're trafficking in the realm of conscience. So keeping a clear conscience, it, it bears, and there may be other, other areas of the Christian life, prayer, for example, that there's just no way that you or I can have rich communion with God in prayer apart from keeping a clear conscience. Secondly, um, this is what you need to fight the good fight of faith. You have to have a good conscience to fight the good fight of faith. And the Christian life is presented as an ongoing battle, an ongoing war. Turn here, if you would, to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 3, just a few texts in this connection. Um, to fight the good fight of faith, you have to have a good conscience. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, here the Apostle Paul writes, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So it, it brings to mind that it's an ongoing conflict. Just turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. 1 Timothy 6, 12. Paul writes, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's just another text bringing out that the Christian life is a war, it's a fight. But then turn, if you would, back to the first chapter of 1 Timothy, in two verses that really bear upon this and put the two together. 
First Timothy chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19. Um, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. And verse 19 says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So here, the fighting the good fight of faith includes the keeping of good conscience. And there's this alarming note here about those who have not kept a good conscience, and they suffer shipwreck with respect to their faith. Then thirdly, to serve God honorably, uh, and I would say joyfully, one must also have a clear conscience. You're in First Timothy, turn to Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, <clears throat> the, the point I'm making is to serve, to serve God honorably and joyfully, you have to have a good conscience. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. And this, um, I'll just read you a couple of related texts here. This, this same term occurs in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10. And this is in Jesus being tempted by Satan. Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And it's the same term that we find here. And then it's interestingly, it's translated um, worship in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. Paul says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So serving God, worshiping God in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and edifying to the soul requires a, a good conscience. And then uh, fourthly, for love to God to flourish, one has to maintain it for a, a clear conscience. For love to God to flourish. And here, turn if you would to First Timothy, back to First Timothy chapter 1 and verse Five. First Timothy chapter one and verse uh, five. And Paul uh, writes here, but the goal of our instruction um, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Uh, George Knight, very helpful commentator on the pastoral epistles, writes: uh, For love to come to fruition, Paul states that one's conscience must be good. Paul means by the good conscience and honest self-evaluation that one's conduct has been obedient rather than disobedient as one evaluates the direction and perspective of one's life at a particular moment. Another older commentator, Patrick Fairbairn, says it is love out of a good conscience uh, properly responsive to the claims of moral obligation, honestly bent on following out its convictions of truth and duty. So there, there are other reasons that may come to your mind. Those are at least some why, why it is that keeping a good, a good conscience is so vital and so uh, necessary and so central. So what I want to do in our time remaining here um, is emphasize a bit the meaning of the term and then look at a textual basis and especially Paul's testimony and then some helps in maintaining a good conscience. So in the first place, just what have you noticed, this is in your notes, the English word used to define the Greek terms are, is, the Greek terms are conscience, awareness, or consciousness. The term occurs about 30 times uh, in the New Testament. The lexicon I make reference to regularly uh, defines it as moral consciousness or conscience. So a short definition is moral consciousness, which is, is probably very helpful because it communicates the thought that uh, we're talking here about the awareness in reference to what is morally right or wrong. So moral consciousness is a helpful short definition. And then in the theological dictionary of the New Testament, I, I reference here to the, to the Greek term, Paul made um, 
into the interior faculty for the personal discernment of good and evil, the practical rule of conduct and motive for action. George Knight writes, the term indicates that um, one is self-conscious of the rightness or wrongness before God of one's actions and attitudes. He writes, Paul roots his view of conscience in the fact that mankind is made in God's image and that God is thereby inherently known and his standards thereby inherently present in the human conscience. Uh, even this is not, that was in your notes, this is not in your notes. Even when Paul recognizes that the conscience is not an altogether reliable instrument because of the effects of sin, it can be weak, it can be seared, it can be defiled, he's, he's um, at the same time affirming it is a moral self-evaluator. This is in your notes. Paul means by the good conscience an honest self-evaluation that one's conduct has been obedient rather than disobedient. And uh, Samuel um, Annesley, who I'll quote a few times this morning, it's from a, a set of books called the, the, the Morning Exercises at Cripplegate, or what is called Several Cases of Conscience. Um, and, and he does a very good job on this particular issue, so I'm, I'm pulling quite a bit from him. He writes, Conscious is man's judgment of himself, that is, of his estate and actions, as they are subjected unto God. Okay, secondly... Um, or, or thirdly, in your notes. Um, the text I want to use as kind of a basis for thought is Acts 24.16. Acts chapter 24.16. I read parts of that. So turn, if you would, back to Acts and the 24th chapter. Acts chapter 24, where we begin with. Uh, in this section, Paul, he, he's giving his defense before the Roman governor, Felix. And if you look at verses 5 and 6, he, he's been a, accused of three crimes. Verses 5 and 6. Uh, of Acts 24, we have found this man a real pest and a, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. So he's, he's accused of three crimes here. Uh, one who stirs up dissension among the Jews and uh, also a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes and also profaning the temple. And then in verses 11 and 12, he, he denies that he started up any dissension or riots. In verse 13, he makes the point that you cannot prove these charges against me. In verse 14, he does admit that he, he is a Christian. So in the context of this defense of these accusations in verse 16, he appeals to the fact that he does his best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. So it's, it's in the context of him defending himself against these accusations where he makes this point. Three observations here about this particular verse, Acts 24, 16. Number one, the maintaining of a clear conscience is characterized by intensity, by intensity. Uh, the King James translation here, the New American Standard says, do my best. The King James is, uh, I do exercise myself. The New King James, I myself always strive. J. Alexander, in his work on the Acts of the Apostles, says it's a verb uh, originally denoting any kind of hard work, then specially applied to athletic strife or training, and then to moral discipline, especially to that of the severest kind, in which sense it's um, the theme of aesthetic and its cognate forms. Now, Matthew Henry says, um, what was his care and, in, uh, and endeavor in pursuance of this? I, ex I exercise myself, I make it my constant business, and govern myself in this intention. He writes, I discipline myself and live by rule. Those that did so were called aesthetics from the word used. Abstain from many 
a thing which my inclination leads me to, and abound in all exercises of religion that are most spiritual, with this in my eye, that I may keep peace with my own conscience. And then secondly, based on verse 16 here, the maintaining of a clear conscience is marked by perpetuity. Uh, Paul says, I always strive, I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience. In other words, this is not just once in a while, occasionally, especially on Monday, I do a good job to try to keep a good conscience, but the rest of the week, I kind of go to plan B. The idea here is I'm always doing this. If you just turn back to chapter 23 and verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. So he makes it clear, this, this has been my practice up to this day. This has always been a priority for him. And the motivation, I would add here, for striving to keep a good conscience is that we, we haven't yet arrived at perfection, right? I don't think anyone has. We're still working at that. So that's important reason for keeping a good conscience. Then number three, maintaining of a clear conscience here, it's marked by sensitivity. And this moves in, in two different directions. First of all, it's sensitivity to God. And that's the, probably the starting point. It means for a Christian, well, we're always fundamentally responsive to, to God. And that's, that's the concern. Let me just read to you from Romans chapter 9, where Paul says, this is from Romans 9, verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. My conscience testifies with me uh, in the Holy Spirit or bears witness in the Holy Spirit. Leon Morris comments on this. He says, the Spirit witnesses with my spirit, that is with believers, that, and now we find that Paul's conscience is illuminated by the Spirit. And another text that's helpful is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. And here Paul says, we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. Then he says, but by manifesting the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So there's an awareness that this is before the being of God. Uh, And secondly, it's to men or before men. Uh, Matthew Henry says his conscientious care extended itself to the whole of his duty. And he was afraid of breaking the law of love either to God or neighbor. Conscience is the the guardian of each table. He's talking about the two tables of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Um, Just by way of some application here, this is actually kind of a first help, but... uh, when you become aware, turn if you would to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. This is kind of moving in the direction of helps to keep a, a good conscience. Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 and verse 24 says this. Um, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So the idea here is that when you become aware uh, that somebody has something against you, which does happen from time to time, um, then you, the, the idea here to keep good conscience, you have to go to that person and, and make things right. You have to do everything you possibly can to make things right. Maybe ask for forgiveness. Sometimes forgiveness isn't extended. You may have had that experience. You go to somebody and you apologize, but they're not having too much of it. But that's still the right thing to do. That's the right way to maintain a good conscience, to go to somebody and do everything that you can to be reconciled to them. So with that said, let me just give you some helps. That's a help, but let me give you some helps uh, for keeping a good conscience. This is from Samuel Annesley. 
Number one, I think this is a, this is a good one. He says, you cannot possibly get rid of your conscience, therefore be persuaded to get a good one. <laughs> I, I really like that. You can't get rid of it, so you might as well have a good one. You might as well keep a good conscience, because it's always going to be there as long as you're on this earth. He says, there's nothing more common than for wicked men to do what they can to extinguish conscience. They flatter it with carnal reasoning. They bribe it with mock devotions. They wound it with heinous provocations. They sear it with customary wickedness. They trample it underfoot by sinning, despite of it. They run away from it, will not endure to hear it by diversion, and yet they can sooner turn their souls out of their bodies than conscience out of their souls. Amongst all these indignities, it is a fr- it is excuse me it is as fresh and active as if as if it were not thus abused. So first reason is to keep a good conscience. It's there; you can't get rid of it. So it's wise to try to keep a good conscience. Secondly, he says, "Compose thyself to live as under God's eye, live as in the more than sensible presence of the jealous God." So the, the, the means of maintaining a clear conscience is to foster and cultivate a, an awareness of the presence of God. Uh, and, and to look back to Paul's text, he says, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God. So the idea here, we're always cognizant of the, of the fact that, that our activities are always before the God of the Bible. You can't run from that. Now, he uses Psalm chapter 139. He, call, he calls this David's appeal. He calls Psalm 139 David's appeal um, to, uh, for a good conscience unto God. I'll just, I'll just flow through some of these. I thought it's very helpful because he has the text and then a bit of a paraphrase. And so these are in your notes. Uh, verse 1, Lord, thou hast searched me and known me, as though he had said, O Lord, thou art the, the heart-searching God who perfectly knows all the thoughts, counsels, studies, endeavors, and actions of all men, and therefore mine. Uh, verse 2, verse two, thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising, thou understandest my thought afar off, as if he had said, thou knowest my rest and motion and my plotting thoughts of both. Uh, verse 3, thou composest my path, excuse me, thou compassest my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. As if he had said, thou discussest and triest as to the utmost. Then verse 4, for there is not a word in my tongue, but but, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. As if he had said, I cannot speak a word, though never so secret, obscure or subtle, without knowest what and why and with what mind it was uttered. Uh, verse 5, Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me, as if he had said, Thou keepest me within thy, the compass of thy knowledge, like a man that will not let his servant go out of his sight. I cannot break away from thee. It's kind of like Jonah. You can go wherever you want, but you, you can't escape the presence of the Lord. Verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. As if he had said, The knowledge of thy, thy great and glorious majesty and infiniteness is utterly past all human comprehension. And then verse 7, whether or well, excuse me, whither or well shall I go, where shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? As if he had said, where can I flee from thee whose essence, presence, and power is everywhere? And then verse 8, if I ascend unto heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. As if he had said, there's no height above thee, there's no depth below thee. And then verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning 
and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, as if he had said, if I had wings to fly as swift as the morning light from the east to the west, that I could in a moment get to the furthest parts of the world. Uh, Verse 10, even there thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. No comment. Verse 11, if I say, surely darkness shall cover me, even the light shall be light about me. As if he had said, though darkness hinders man's sight, it does not thine. In a world, excuse me, in a word, look which way, excuse me, in a word, look which way you will. There is no hiding place from God. Now, I have uh, six or so more verses here. Um, and I've included these just to kind of jog our memories about how prevalent this theme is in all of Scripture. That is, the full awareness of God of all of our comings and goings all the time. This is a tremendous help in keeping a, a good conscience. So a contemplation of these verses is very helpful in, in, this, in this area. So notice just some of these texts. Uh, Psalm thirty-three, thirteen: the Lord looks from heaven. He, he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. So he sees all the sons of men. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. And the point here is is no one is ever excluded. Um, There's no place one can go to be excluded from this reality. Then Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. The eyes of the Lord, which which range back and forth throughout the earth. This idea of range, um, it's to go about. The New King James Version is scanned to and fro throughout the whole earth. So you get the picture of somebody that's just looking back and forth. Um, the, The whole earth draws attention to the fact that there's no place that is excluded. The whole earth, you can't go to... Yakima or someplace and think that it's not going to be true there. Second Chronicles 16, 9, um, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You've acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Um, now there's a positive implication here. He will strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The, the next three verses bear a little bit more on the subject of conscience um, Proverbs fifteen three: the eyes of the Lord are at every place watching the evil and the good. So this means that the moral character of our activity, that's under scrutiny all the time. Jeremiah sixteen seventeen: my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. All of our activities at all times are being observed. So when we're, we're speaking with each other, we can be a little bit selective when we're talking with one another about what we say. It's probably fair to say sometimes we may relate certain actions that will put us in a positive light when we're talking with one another. Um, but to hear that there's nothing that is concealed from his eyes, that which we might want to conceal or hide from others, but nothing can be concealed from him, cannot be hidden from him. And then Hebrews 4.13 is maybe the most sobering of all these verses. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. No creature hidden from his sight. Much like Jeremiah 16.17, all things open and laid bare. So it, re- it reveals here that his gaze penetrates into the deepest levels of our own consciousness, motives, intentions, ideas, sequences of thought. Um, nothing can be kept secret from him. It's fully revealed. 
Uh, O'Brien, with regard to the word translated laid bare, says it indicates that everyone is completely exposed to the all-seeing and living God. And John Owen, right, not in your notes, John Owen says, a due and holy consideration at all times of the all-seeing eye of Jesus Christ is a great preservation against backslidings or declensions in profession. If we retain this in remembrance, that all the most secret beginnings of spiritual declensions in us are continually under the eye, it will influence us unto watchful care and diligence. And then it says, with whom we have to do, that draws our attention to the day of reckoning, to final judgment. And then um, third, be serious and frequent in the examination of your heart and life. A third help, be serious and frequent in the examination of your heart and life. I like the word serious um, because um, people are serious about a lot of things, aren't they? Uh, You know people that are very serious about sports or this or that or the other thing. They're serious about a lot of things. And he's saying you need to be serious here about examining the condition of your own heart and life. He writes, it's a shame to see the carelessness of most that are better acquainted with anything than themselves. There, there are many that know the histories of a thousand years past, and yet cannot tell you the particulars of their own lives. Men well acquainted with the mysteries of arts and nature, but utterly ignorant of the secrets of their own souls. And then number four, do not do anything on which you cannot pray for a blessing. Do not do anything on which you cannot pray for a blessing. Um, and then lastly, take heed of every sin, count no sin small. It's impossible to have a small sin because there's no small God to sin against, right? So, so cases count no sin small. And then the, the, the last um, uh, help here, I'll just read what he has to say. This is kind of interesting. We're talking here from the 17th century. Screw up your obedience to every command of the highest. Ferret out every sin to the most secret corruption. When you have set your watch against the first risings of sin, beware of the, the borders of sin. Shun the very appearance of evil. Venture not upon occasions or temptations of sin. Those that dare venture upon occasion as children upon the ice shall find there is always danger, never any good. Morality itself will teach you this lesson. To keep clear of evil, if you ever would, either be good or enjoy it. But seeing as, on the one hand, there cannot be truth of grace, and truce with sin... So on the other hand, while grace is imperfect, sin will have a being. Let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you this morning for the scope of your holy revelation on this particular theme. And I I, I pray, Lord, as as we all must live a life before thee, and, and we're here this day, but we all have our places, we all have our Uh, places of activity, and I I pray that this would be a help to each one of us in our our living a life that is pleasing to Thee, and and living a life that is increasingly um, joyous and and in a sense of Your favor as we would um, seek by the the help of Your Spirit and Your Holy Word and by Thy grace to keep a, a good conscience before God and before one another. And may that be true of all of us for your honor and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.